We'll see if anybody <laughs> we'll see if anybody knows the words yet. I knew something was missing. Eric, don't you play the guitar? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to add a guitar part. I do. Yeah. We should play this for the office every Friday. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I have a a little... Every morning I make everyone listen to my guitar. You do? (laughs) Sing along. Oh! No. (laughs) Just kidding. No. All right. We can get started here. We are officially recording. What's up, my juice lovers? Welcome to Good Nature Radio, the place where the juice industry comes to get help with starting and growing a cold-pressed juice business. I'm your host, Charlie Wetlawfer, joined with my esteemed co-host, Chef Ari, the number one juice business consultant in the world and author of The Juicing Companion. Of course, the wonderful Olivia Esquivel, founder and owner of Southern Press Juicery and Wild Crafted Collection. Uh, We're also joined by the one and only... Eric Wetlawfer. What's up, Eric? There's actually another Eric Wetlawfer who lives in Florida, <laughs> just for the reference, but... The one and only <laughs> Eric Wetlawfer that's also based. my brother. <laughs> yeah. uh, Eric is CEO of Good Nature and also my younger brother, even though he's technically my boss, which is a um, sensitive topic in the family. And uh, <laughs> he's going to just be on with us today to talk about some fun stuff. So, if you, as a reminder, if you'd like to send a question, if you'd like to send a question for the juicing experts, you can do that at goodnature.com slash radio. You can record a voice message. I'm very excited to say we actually have four awesome voice messages today to play on the show. So, I guess on the last episode when I begged everybody to please, please, please leave us a voice message, some people actually did. So, I'm super excited. They're all really good questions, too. Um, and also goodnature.com slash radio is where you can request a free consultation with our juicing experts and download valuable resources. So let's get right into it this week. Um, we have a the first message I'm going to play here is, let's see, which one should I do first? Let's, let's talk about oat milk. So oat milk is a topic we haven't discussed yet. Um, Carrie here has a question about oat milk. Play it. Hi, guys. My name is Carrie Daniel. I'm with Downtown Coffee in Paris, Texas. We have a coffee shop slash juice bar. My husband does the coffee drinks. I do the juices. We've been in operation for about a year, and we've tried to make our own oat milk for the coffee portion of the shop, but we keep having problems with getting the milk to stretch on the espresso machine. And so we kind of got frustrated and gave up and just started buying cartoned oat milk, but you guys have inspired me to try again. So do y'all have any advice on how to get it stretch? Ari, what the heck does stretching milk mean? Uh, well, I imagine that's kind of like when you foam that milk, you know, make it stretch and expand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with, 
what you need with uh with doing that for your milks is you need to have your protein and fat. So they they both have different factors what how it affects the foam. Uh the protein allows it to expand and stretch and the fat just gives it the richness and kind of prolongs the deflatation of the of the actual foam. So oat milk is a little tricky because it doesn't have a lot of fat to kind of keep that foam stabilized for a bit. Uh I'd say a few options are either possibly adding uh a mix if you can or use it for different applications because it'll when you actually steam it with that steam wand if you're if you're doing that that'll definitely help rather than uh other forms of being able to foam that up uh but you could add a little bit of cashew cream or or something else to the mix to have it last a little bit longer a lot of that store-bought stuff does a great job of foaming because in most cases it has kind some kind of uh gums or stabilizers in there that'll actually help with that uh but the real natural stuff doesn't have that so uh yeah just mess around with the ratios possibly introduce some other different types of seeds or grains that might have that fat content to help it out yeah i would say just um at my juice bar in particular you know i always um we t- i think we talked on the last pod- podcast about trying to make things in house like we make our almond milk um, that we use at the smoothie bar and at the latte station on our X1. Um, and it really helps us control food costs. So I, I like where this question is going, um, meaning that you're ma- trying to make things in-house versus buying a convenience item. I will say that um, I really was kind of excited and hell-bent about having house-made oat milk in our shop because we do so much with oats. I mean, we do our maple oat granola. Um, we just, we do, we, we, we buy so many oats. It's unbelievable. So I was like, why are we not making oat milk? And why are we not serving oat milk? Um, Because we weren't actually buying carton oat milk because I'm so against that just in my own shop. It's just not our particular brand. I mean, and I love the carton oat milk stuff. But so one thing that we do, I don't know how your espresso machine works, but we actually get really high quality, um, high grade frothers. And we put our milks in that and froth that while the espresso is going. We actually, we don't use espresso. We use a cold brew extract from a local coffee maker. So you might want to consider, because I don't know what machine you have. I'm not sure if the coffee is mixing together with the milk at some point, but if you're just steaming the milk, you might want to just consider getting something, um, a frother that takes it to a higher level and stirs it at the same time. Um, they, they're really nice because you can do double or triple batches in them. You pour them into the container, put it on like a, like a burner and just push the go button and it just spins and spins rather than having to stand there with a wand. So that's my preferred method. Um, and then you could add in the espresso later. I will say just an FYI, I mean, you know, being able to source things right now is difficult and it's, you know, what may be difficult for me to source may not be difficult for another juice bar to source, but I'm having great difficulty sourcing oats right now. Um, particularly the kind of oats that we get are gluten-free rolled oats. So just something to consider. Maybe that's a product that you just, you know, let your staff know, let consumers know, hey, this is made in-house. It's not going to have the same broth that you might expect from a um, a barista mix, um, but it is made in-house. And then maybe always have a, a carton or two backup if you can get happy with the consistency that you're going with. Or you may just have to throw in the towel and be like, this isn't giving us 
the consistency and the quality um, and our coffee that we want. I think at some point you have to make a judgment call, but just make sure that you're communicating it one and that two, you're able to source it consistently. Yeah. Oats are really underutilized too, because I mean, that's, oats are really cheap compared to like almonds, cashews, and all the other plant-based milks, you know? Mm -hmm. So you could definitely uh, make an affordable batch of oat milk, but it is really challenging. That's probably the most challenging plant-based milk to make because you get that slimy Mm -hmm. consistency if it's either over-processed or over-soaked. So be sure to consider what kind of oat you're using, like a steel cut or rolled oat, and then that soak time will vary. Uh, make sure your liquid is cold as possible through that process. You know, when you're, when you're blending it together for pressing, uh, yeah. And time is really critical for that. Too, yeah. So. And you're going to have a shorter shelf life on that, just like you are on all plant-based milk. So just take that into consideration, um, for your production. It's maybe something you have to make every two to three days, regardless of your volume. Um, it may be something if you have a lot of volume, um, you know, but you're making smaller batches, you may have to end up making it every day, but just something to consider. Um, going to say something I forgot. Oh yeah. I mean, what, what Olivia said about the education, it seems like you could just have a little sign or just verbally tell people like if you order a coffee with oat milk, it may not be as foamy as you're used to or something because we make everything in house from real rolled oats and it's super fresh and it doesn't come from a carton that almost improves the brand in my opinion. Yeah. When people know that you're dedicated to I that. would say I, w- I wouldn't probably getting into a, a super long conversation from the branding perspective, but if you follow Southern Prestucery, you'll notice that we are really always toting the fact that we make our house made almond milk. And so, you know, I have whatever, eight, 10 smoothies on the menu. And every single time it has an almond milk in it, in the description and the ingredients on the menu that guests are reading, it says house made almond milk. I don't care if I say it 10 times in a row. So that's something you could do. I mean, once I read house made, I already kind of know it's not going to be what I'm expecting from your local grocer. Um, Sometimes I, I think, you know, because just from human nature, we have the tendency to over-explain and then it just gets too complicated. So maybe just dote on the fact that it's house-made and they'll already know that it's special, that that is maybe a reason why it's higher price and that the consistency is going to be a little bit different than what they're used to at home. Um, I was reading one oat milk brand that specifically uh, advertises that their milk is good for stretching and foaming and they put sunflower oil mm. They were talking about the sunflower oil they add. So I guess that gives it the fat that holds the steam better. That's yeah, so probably, yeah. as mm-hmm. Ari said, like you're just missing that fat. So if you can add, yeah. um, like the, Ari said, the cashews, cashews have a ton of fat in them. So if you have the cashew milk, probably foam it pretty well. Or even, what if you could just add in some almond oil or nut oil or something? Okay, we can move on. Uh, next message. From Tess is about raising prices, which I'm excited to have my brother on for this discussion because we talk about this all the time at Good Nature. There's always a constant discussion going on about pricing if you're running any type of business. Uh, Let's see here. Here it is. Hello, Good Nature. This is Tessie with Roots Wellness Bar. I own a little small home-based juice business. We sell 12-ounce bottles at $8 a pop. 
My question for you is, how do you go about raising prices? We would like to go from $8 to $9 just because of cost of goods, all that struggle bus that's going around, and we're looking to have to do that. So I would love your guys' thoughts on how to do that with your customers and roll that out and what's the best conversation to have. Thanks. Olivia, do you want to kick this one off? Yeah, I mean, okay, so, so my first my first thing is it sounds like you're calculating your food cost to me um, just from that very brief message, just because you said increase of um, cost of goods. But the first thing before you make any sort of pricing decisions um, starting out or even if you're deep into it is to know your cost of is to know your food cost. I, I've been on the phone with so many juice bars this week, um, some that are starting, some that are deep into their business and they're not calculating food costs correctly. Um, and so it's really hard for us to determine um, without doing that first, what marketing move we want to make, what conversation we want to have with guests. Um, so if you need help calculating food costs, the first thing I would say is to reach out to Chef Ari and get really intimate with knowing that process and knowing how to create a food cost spreadsheet by yourself um, after Chef Ari leads you with that. Um, that way you can do a full cost analysis of your menu. And then um, it's something that you should really be doing frequently, particularly with the shift of um, cost of goods. Like she said, it's something that we're doing at least once a month. And really, we should probably be doing it more than that. Not that we would necessarily change prices once a month because we wouldn't, but just so that we know um, kind of where we stand. Um, and that might help us position us from a marketing standpoint. Now, back to her point about how to have that conversation if she knows that she needs to raise her prices because she has an increased food cost and it's not in a, in a um, you know, in a good place, then I would say that the one thing COVID has brought us is the understanding globally that things are coming up in price. And so I, I don't want you to lose, lose sleep too much over the conversation you have to have with your guest. I, but I also don't want you to have to raise your price every month because that's not good for your brand. It's not good for your guest. Um, it's just not the right thing to do. And so um, you do have to be really diligent about what you do it. And then, you know, sometimes less conversation is better. A lot of times, you know, I, I recommend just in making that increase on your menu. There will be a guest, particularly a regular guest that comes up that knows that her, you know, ABC juice or smoothie cost $8 and now it costs $9. And you can just say at the time of exchange of money, I know it's really killing us. We, you know, really were tried to hold out as long as we can. But unfortunately, the, the rise in food cost, um, we had to, to, to make this change. When food costs come back down, we'll be excited to bring the margin back down if and when we're able to. And then just ring her on up, like, <laughs> least conversation, the better, in my opinion. I have walked into some restaurants and I just do not recommend this from a branding standpoint where before I'm even seated, right, there's a sign that says, um, please be patient with us. We are low staffed. Prices have gone up. So right away, I'm like, you know, okay, so I'm going to have shitty service. I'm going to have a really expensive meal for shitty service. It just already sets <laughs> this precedent in my mind of what I'm about to expect. And I'm like, I don't even want to go in here. So I know from buying my own groceries at home, you all know, and especially from running a business, that everything is more expensive than it was before. Um, and it's just the way of the world right now. So I would just quietly make the change, have the conversation when it comes up in conversation with a guest. 
you know, show your remorse as as you would want to be shown and then just say, basically, this is what we have to do right now to, to keep up with cost of goods. Simple as that. Yeah, 100 percent. Like the, the I, I've I mean, now that you have your it definitely sounds like you have your food costs figured out, which is uh, really refreshing for sure. Uh, understanding that you need to make that movement. I, I feel that the, as an owner, it's, it feels like a lot more challenging than it actually yeah. is than just making that less is more. Definitely. Uh, you know, your demographic has that factor in as well. You know, like it, you're just raising it from $8 to $9. So it's not a huge jump. So having that food cost there, which sounds like you already have, you could be transparent if it's ever brought up too. You know, you could say my cost of goods went up 10%. You know, this is something we have to do to stay in business if it is brought up, you know, but I think making that change, it's, it's not a huge jump. And I think most people will realize that. Right. And I mean, that this is why it's just so important to know your cost of goods, your food costs before you even, if you can, before you set a menu out. Because I was concerned when the question started playing that it was going to be from like $8 to $12. And then I'm like, whoa, now this is the conversation because this totally changes your brand. Um, so I would say I like to have a rule of thumb of when I, unless I'm doing an entire menu price increase, which I've only done one, which in the seven years that Southern Press Juicery has been running and it was recently. Um, typically when I increase the price of something, I'm so knowledgeable about what our food cost is at that current time that I'll find something else on my menu to bring the price down. Not that it's going to increase my sales. And in fact, I'll probably end up losing that dollar at the end of what I brought down, but it just feels good to say to guests, yes, we had to raise the price of ABC juice $1, but we were able to bring the price down of juices X, Y, and Z down $1. Like for me as an owner operator, it just feels a little better. It's sort of have like a, like a give and take. Um, but again, you can't start making those decisions until you know what your food costs are. And that's why you just, you know, maybe you put out, maybe you even put out a new seasonal thing that hasn't been on your menu before, like apples right now. Are you doing apple cider where the cost is really great? And you offer that at an eight. And then you quietly slip the not the eight to nine up on your other juices, and then you just talk a lot about the new seasonal feature that's at eight or seven fifty, and blow you know just print money on that guy, and then um, slowly, really, they'll just kind of get used to the prices. Eric, as the CEO of the number one commercial juice equipment manufacturer in the world, how do you think about prices? Pricing is really hard. Um, I mean, I have like read books on it and I know we, we literally talk about pricing every day. Um, and we have a lot of skews of stuff we sell. I mean, how many hundreds of spare parts we offer and things like that. But like Olivia said, the first thing you have to do is know your cost. Um, if you can't make your margin on a product and Olivia, you talked about this when you're in Buffalo too, that you go through your menu and you decide it's time to pull this item because I can't raise the price enough. Like if something goes out of season right, or right. something. So you actually will look at, hmm, should I be even offering this now? Or should I just raise the price down or should I pull it? Um, and that's an important thing to consider too. I mean, it might be some time for something to go sometimes. The other thing to put in perspective, so raising a buck, so from eight to nine, it's like 12 and a half percent. Depending on how long you've been at that 
price point, I'm guessing costs have gone up more than 12.5% on a lot mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, it feels worse as the business owner to charge your customer more, but as the customer buying all the fruits and vegetables and bottles and things, you've been paying all these increased prices as well. And you just have to, as a business owner, be able to cover your overhead, make your required margins so you can continue to offer your products. And I think to Olivia's point, you don't want to be so alarmist like, you guys are going to be so mad. I'm raising my prices. I'm going to bring bring it to your attention and you know put it right up on my billboard or something. But uh, be ready to talk about it. And just know it's what you have to do to run your business in a healthy way. I mean, it's um, pricing is really hard, though. There's people that go to grad school and get their doctorate and like and just work for businesses full time as pricing consultants on what to price things at, how to raise it, how much to raise it. It's really a whole industry. You have to pay him like a hundred grand to come tell you how much to charge for one of your products. So yeah, I pretty much agree with what everybody said. Uh, I made a few notes here while people were talking. It's first of all, it is always like, oh my god, if we raise prices, people are going to be mad. They're going to complain. They're going to leave us bad reviews. Uh, and that may be true. Like some, a few people might, but I think you have to think about your customers as a whole group instead of just worrying about the individual customer that might complain. And the truth is, even though they complain, if they like your product and they like your brand and they like your juice, I don't think raising your juice price a dollar is going to cause them to stop buying from you and go somewhere else. I I think it will be like a moment of friction in your business, maybe. And also you're probably overthinking it. It's probably not as big a deal as you think. And if you think about margin, how important margin is, for example, let's say you're charging $8 and you're making, say you're making $2 profit. So after you pay for all the cost of food and the packaging and the labels, labor to make it, let's say there's $2 of gross margin left over. And now you raise that to $9. Now you're making $3 of gross margin, which is a 50% increase in your profit. So that means even if half of your customers, or would it be a third? Eric, check my math on this. But I think if half your customers stopped buying, you'd still be making as many dollars profit as if you didn't raise your price at all. I'm not going to check the math on that. I'll leave that up to Eric because I think he needs to practice. But (laughs) I will just say that I also think that her prices are really low for the I wouldn't say they're really low. I would say they are on the lower end for the industry. So, but again, she could be doing two or three ingredient juices. And so maybe they're not, I don't, we're not looking at a recipe. And so it's hard for me to say, and we're also not looking at her food costs. But um, if I'm thinking it's a cold pressed juice in a glass, did I, did she say in a glass bottle? And she's, oh, okay. Maybe in my mind, 12 ounce, 12 ounce, ounce, um, going eight to nine. I mean, it's true what, what Eric said. Like, I do think that there comes a price. I think Charlie and I may disagree on this, but it comes, there does come a part in my mind where you kind of price yourself out of the market. I don't think you're there. Let me just say that if you're going from eight to nine, my juices, um, you know, I have shots that start at five, some at four, and I go all the way up to 11. I don't feel good about selling a $12 juice in my market. Now, I know I can go to California and I could buy a 12, I don't know, maybe even a 14 or $15 juice. 
So it all depends on a couple of different things. The first thing it should depend on is your food cost. The second thing is um, what the market can bear. I still think you're on the low end. So I just think you just got to do it. Um, and I think, I think you still got some room to go. But if this is, if we're talking about a simple apple, lemon, carrot juice and a 12 ounce, you know, then you're kind of on the high end. So it really depends on what's going in that bottle in my mind. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. But the first thing I thought was $8 seems low. If you're making your juice on a good nature cold press and you're buying all the produce and you're bottling it, you're selling it and that you juice it at home, you might even be delivering to the customer. You've got to leave enough in the price that you can afford to keep doing business and keep making juice and keep acquiring customers. And if your margins are razor thin, like let's say you get like a bad batch of produce that costs you a hundred dollars in waste. And now you're not m making money this week. Cause that was all of your profit from the whole week. Like you need to leave yourself enough room. So I would say just go ahead and do the price increase. And it's probably not going to be as big a deal as you think. Chef, what do you think? Yeah. Did you sit? Yeah. There's a, there's a funny story of, uh, when I was a chef in Vegas, it wasn't the property I worked at, but, uh, there was tons of conventions that would happen, you know, all different kinds of industries that would come to town and they would have this thing called dynamic oh, pricing, yeah. you know, and mm -hmm. all their menus, uh, cocktails, everything depending on who was in town, those prices would go up. So like if there was a concrete convention, the steak prices and the hard alcohol would go up. If we had juice con there, all the vegetarian options would go up <laughs> and they would constantly fluctuate the prices almost weekly. It was pretty, it was a cool thing to see, but it, you know, it was uh, something Not something about. I recommend. Not, goes back yeah, to your not something I recommend from a brand no, perspective. Yeah, that's something that works in Vegas. Things that work in Vegas work <laughs> nowhere else. I have another interesting pricing story, which is also not a recommendation, but just a story. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but maybe you've noticed, but the candy bar industry the way they do price increases is they release like a king size candy bar at a higher price. And then they slowly make that smaller and smaller and smaller until it's not a king size anymore. It's just a regular candy bar, but it's still at the old king size price. And then after like a year, when it gets to be the size of regular candy bar, now they release a new king size candy bar at a higher price. And they keep doing that. That's like the cycle with huh. like how they risk cereal and stuff too. They do They have like the family size. It's the big one, and then the regular one's a like a couple ounces less than it used to be. Mm. Yeah, Girl Scout cookies, <laughs> one of them. A box in one sitting, you know. Yeah, Ari leaves a lot of really negative, nasty yeah, Girl Scout cookie reviews. They're not getting that past me. You know? <laughs> I used to get full on a box yeah. of grasshoppers. Now I don't get full anymore. <laughs> Something's going on. <laughs> funny that's funny all right uh we've got someone else for the home from home business left us a message play t's message here hi you guys my name is t i'm so happy you guys started this podcast i love it my question is what advice would you give someone like me a home-based juice business owner with uh staying consistent 
uh, with pickups and days and how to make a home-based juice business run more smoothly. All right. So yeah, how do you schedule pickups and deliveries and orders? Um, Olivia, hmm. did you start? I remember I didn't start it. I didn't uh, start the business at home, but I started the model at home before we opened, um, you know, creating our recipes and figuring out food costs and things like that. And then, you know, when we first did open, we started with a lot of farmer's markets. We already had a brick and mortar, but we used farmer's markets to get the word out. And then we even toyed with delivery, which kind of plays into this. Um, But I talked to a lot of folks that are starting their business out at home. And I think that's a totally fine way to keep your costs down and figure out, um, kind of grow, you know, grow slowly and figure out what you can do. But I would, I would say there are some things that, that you do at home that still need to be restaurant grade, right. Um, particularly for production and consistency with your guests. So I think it's really important to start to institute, um, or implement systems in your, in your company, even if you're making from home, I mean, we all know the trouble and the struggle with cold press juicing is you get all of this produce, right? And you have no more room for anything else. And then you juice it and it goes into a few bottles and then you're empty again. And so it's really coming up with um, that cycle and you want to get it out as quickly as possible so you don't lose dates. So I would just, um, I I would say that I know that it's very easy to jump around with guests. So like if you, we would say, you know, we'll do deliveries on Tuesdays and Thursdays from two to four in a three mile radius or something like that from our, from our brick and mortar. I just think that whatever you do, you have to stay consistent and you, and you can't just kind of give into the guest that wants a Saturday delivery when you're not ready for a Saturday delivery, because then what you're doing is you're going out and you're buying produce, you're producing, you're bottling, and you're you're doing all of the work to get to one guest. And so there comes a point where you really have to set what the rule is so that you can set your production schedule, so that you can set your buying, so that you can communicate and guests can know what to expect. I mean, it's kind of nice because you have social media and you can maybe say, hey, guys, I wasn't planning on juicing today, but today I got some time. And so I'm putting out an apple cider. Um, and maybe you can sell that on the fly. But the, the best thing you can do for your guests is just be consistent. So how do you do that? You just say, okay, according to my home life balance, you know, in the days that I get my produce on X days, I'm going to wash maybe that day and produce the next day. I mean, I'll let chef take that part, but you just have to stay consistent and be communicating that plan with your guest. And then after a little bit of time, they will start to get um, kind of with the program and know, okay, we know that she delivers on Saturdays and Sundays, so we better get our order in by Friday at 12 o'clock. Yeah, setting up that schedule is crucial, you know, because when you have a home-based business, you don't want people who need to follow you to find out when they could order their product. You know, you have to evaluate what you're doing. Like, do you have another job? Do you have other uh, requirements that you got to go to? You know, set that schedule and stick with it, you know, and determine what works for you. Uh, it could be starting off just one day a week, you know, deliveries by this day, and then we're going to make it that day and gradually grow your business. But the schedule is the most important aspect to begin with. Uh, so you got to stick with that for sure. Something I've seen, which works pretty well is they just, you know, any orders 
they come in Saturday and Sunday are delivered Tuesday. If they come in Monday and Tuesday, they're delivered Thursday. Like you have like three delivery days a week. Any orders that come in by the cutoff, that allows you as the juice business owner to shop for the whole production at once and make, you know, plan out your production and make all the juice and do a whole day of delivery without worrying about making juice that day and stuff. I think that works pretty well for the at-home businesses. I was a uh, customer of a produce share and they did something that worked pretty well. They said you can either come an evening during the week or a morning on the weekend. So like for me, I couldn't get there during the week. I would go on the weekend and just to have that balance of the people who maybe have like nine to fives, they have a time they can pick up or people that have to come outside of the business week. That Mm. I think would help. That makes sense. A lot of challenges too for home-based businesses is they, they take special requests mm-hmm. too often. Yeah, like, you hey, know, you can't get uh, there on Tuesday. To, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, and with the menu too, you know, where they'll have a, a bar that'll say, oh, I want this juice blend but without ginger or this one without that, and they're constantly modifying their juice recipes and their schedule gets extremely challenging when they start producing the juice because their menu went from eight juices to 20 different variations. So, mm. uh try to stick with that menu as well that really helps sticking with the consistency and also your production can be broken down Uh, basically you want to look at when you make the juice as soon as you juice it that's kind of you want that as close to the pickup as possible but then put other procedures in place where i go grocery shopping two days before pick up the produce two days before so you have that extra day just in case there are shortages and then wash the produce the night before, having that ready to go, just having that kind of buffer or gap ahead of time to prevent anything that might possibly Even weighing come. out your recipes. Like a lot of times I'll see in our kitchen, you know, I'll walk in and there'll be all these bus tins, uh, bus tubs of pre already washed recipes. And maybe there's nobody even in the back of the house. And those are just prepped for tomorrow because they know they have an extra long production list and they just want to jam it out and everything already be weighed and calculated and just throw it in the juicer. So, yeah, I mean, my problem with home-based businesses is that I think you you start out with family and friends a lot of times, and then you you are kind of like just a pleaser, um, and you, you get too used to that. So I do think, you know, I'm always a, a fan of taking, particularly if it's a cleanse or if it's a large bulk order that you're producing particular for that person, and you're not sure if you can offload it to somebody else that they don't come and pick up the juice, I do recommend requiring purchase, um, paying for that before pickup. So you already have the money in your pocket to go shopping for your produce. It also helps the guests kind of commit to their pickup date um, and have it right on your website that there is no, you know, due to the nature of this business, there's um, you're committed to the day that you produce um, or the day that you pick to pick up. Um, So I just think create some systems that feel like they work for you and obviously for your guest. You know, if Sunday's a bad day to pick up and you realize that none of your guests want to pick up on Sunday, then obviously that's not a day you would pick. But you kind of get to make the shots as long as you realize um, you're going to have some people that'll criticize and that's okay. You just say, this is the way I have to do it right now. Let me know, you know, if you'd like to submit an order. Yeah. I I mean, with this type of business, if you're taking orders and then producing to that order, it has to be paid up front. I agree. I mean, let's just, I do that even at Southern press. You just set up a, yeah. You just set up a little Shopify website, take orders up front. They pay with the credit card and then, uh, you know, okay, Monday, my juicing day, I have to produce for all the orders that came in Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then 
deliver them all Tuesday or get picked up Tuesday, whatever. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, there's a lot of systems like that that I think would could really help. Um, you know, current juice bars, brick and mortars, and from home, like having a cleanse form if it's going to be a long bulk order, having a cleanse form with the day they're going to pick up, the time they're going to pick up, their phone number so you can call them back. How many people are doing the cleanses, right? Because sometimes they'll say, oh, we want to pick up six days worth of cleanses. Okay, well, I need to know from a production standpoint, is that two people doing three days or is that one person doing six days? Because the the dates, right, chef have to correspond with how many people it is. Mm. So there's a lot of documents like that that I think really help make the um, make systems cleaner for your staff. And so, for instance, if you know somebody has submitted an order and they're supposed to pick up and it's, you know, 10 past the hour and they're not there yet, I, I always have their phone number. I call them and say, hey, it's Olivia from Southern Press. She's sure you just calling to make sure you're coming to pick up your order. I'm happy to meet you outside. Got it all ready for you. Because sometimes people forget, you know, but what you don't want to do is then have to have a conversation with a guest that's forgotten. You've already given, taken their money and then they want another. And then what are you going to do with that juice? It's such a pain. So having systems in place where you can reach back out to your guest um, to ensure, a, you know, a, a really smooth system, I think is, is, is a good way to go. What, what works great too for home-based businesses are, uh, you know, incorporating uh, farmer's markets too. You know, I, I see that quite a bit where you could order from you and pick it up from the farmer's market is a great option to bring in new customers and stuff. Yeah, that, that makes sense. We, I guess you could even take orders like at the farmer's markets mm-hmm. every Saturday, take an order one Saturday and have it yep. for them the next week too. It's pretty cool. Um, Eric, I, I know you make a lot of large batches of juice, uh, whether it's on the M1 or X1 Mini at home or in our uh, kitchen at work. Can you maybe just talk about your process in general, like what kind of tools you use and what kind of flow you have when you're making like big batch of juice? It's just you in the kitchen alone making like 20 bottles of juice or whatever. Yeah. So I do that a lot. Um, the, the hardest part for me at home is like, I have to kind of convert my kitchen to, you know, I have two young kids. Um, so I have to like kind of clear the kitchen out a little bit because it's always, you know, we just fed them or something. So I have to spend a little time prepping the space because it's not ready to just get juicing. Um, and then I'll do shopping usually the day before. And I try to do my recipes that are easy to shop at the store that I go to. So like, I don't do anything with like a half apple or, you know, a small amount of something or other. It'll be a whole head of kale or two whole heads of kale, or three whole heads of kale. It's not, I'm not like weighing specific little um, ingredients because it's just not efficient for me. If I was calculating my food costs, I would have up half pineapple they wouldn't use if my recipes didn't allow for me to use that whole pineapple. So that kind of dictates how I set up my recipes and my batches. But I'll um, buy all the produce the night before, and then usually right back to back, I'll prep and juice and bottle and i'll have a few like big cambro trays and a big colander to wash and kind of like stage the produce in and a big cutting board and one big pitcher or juice vessel and then that's usually kind of enough tools so i can get my recipes going and as the press is pressing i'm kind of prepping the next recipe and for me the whole process like start to finish from when i'm getting produce out of my fridge and started to clean it is usually like 
between one and two hours. And I've got, you know, 10 bottles or 20 bottles of juice that's all in my big jugs ready to go. But um, yeah, getting set up Eric's is... pretty efficient. I've gotten pretty good at it because I'm lazy generally. So I like try to make it as easy for myself as possible. But the hardest part is like if you start juicing before you're really ready, like, okay, now I got to find a cutting board and oh, the press is half full. I don't have my juice container yet. Or, oh, I got to get these dishes out of the sink. I don't have any place to rinse this thing off. So I found that like just, and it's especially probably hard for a home juice business because it's a home. And then for like two nights a week, it's the juice kitchen. So you have to like Mm -hmm. really get it ready for the work that you're going to do. You're going to take over that space for a while. And then when you're done, you can clean up and put the toaster back where it was. Ari, do you help people come up with checklists of like prep lists that aren't only the ingredients, but also the kind of, um, what's the term? Yeah. What do you, what what do you call all the little things you need? All the utensils and everything? Smallwares, oh, like uh, smallwares list, yeah, 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 yeah. We help out people with that for sure, and it's a, it's a good thing to have just so that the right utensils for stuff could make the process so much easier. Mm-hmm. I always think it's funny because a lot of chefs could be amazing in a professional kitchen, and then when they get the they're horrible at home cooks, you know, <laughs> just in a <laughs> in a home setting because it's two different completely completely different animals you know it's just uh it's tough especially when you go into uh another person's kitchen for the first time and you're spend half the time trying to find the proper utensils and i mean i would say one of the most underrated thing is just a very sharp knife like when you're juicing if you're if you're trying to cut around the uh perimeter of an orange you know peeling it with a knife that's not sharp it's just going to be a hard process. You're going to waste a lot of citrus and stuff. And like just having a really sharp knife, I think it's so important. Yeah. Yeah. For when me, having on... like mm-hmm. containers dedicated to like produce. So I'm not mixing and matching all these different sizes, like mixing bowls and stuff and trying to make it work. If I have like my set of mm-hmm. stuff, that helps out a lot because things get taken for other purposes at home and with family. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do think it's totally possible with a Good Nature M1 to run a little juice business from home, uh, especially if you're doing the method that he was asking about here, which is taking orders online for a couple of days, producing all those orders and delivering them all. And you just have a nice system in place where you're not always scrambling to fill a last minute order or like I already said, doing customizations or trying to do a million different things. It's just a nice process. You've got everything laid out correctly. On our website, we've got a home kitchen infographic layout you can download. Uh, you can probably find it. Just just Google uh, Good Nature Home Kitchen Layout. And Ari took the time working with our graphic designer to really lay out the entire kitchen, including equipment and utensils and smallwares and refrigeration and everything. So you guys can check that out. Okay, we have a customer named Stephanie left us a message about expanding to multiple locations. I'll play it here. Hi, Charlie, Olivia, and Ari. 
I'm enjoying your podcast. This is Stephanie with Peak Press Juicery, and I would like to hear your opinions on storefront location, especially in relation to growth potential versus overhead. When is it time to move from a small, super affordable space to something with higher overhead, but more foot traffic? Olivia, you've had plenty of experience. I think you've opened second locations that didn't work out, and then you've opened second locations that do work out. So maybe talk about the whole thought process. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is to really, um, does does it sound to you like she's, she's like, she doesn't have a storefront right now, right? Like maybe she's using a commercial kitchen. That's kind of what it sounded like to me. Like she's ready to move into an actual storefront to get more people to come in. I mean. Yeah, like, like pick, kind of like pick a storefront. Yes. Okay. So not going from one to two, but really going from to your first one. Okay. Well, the obvious thing is just like doing your food costs. You have to know your numbers, right? You have to, of course, account for the fact that whatever your numbers are now would hopefully and potentially grow if you had a storefront. Um, But really, you have to have financial backing. I mean, you have to have some sort of comfort level um, that you'll be able to, one, you know, if it's slow at the beginning, as people get to know that you're there, make rent cost, make utilities, make all your fixed costs, and then still be able to pay for your produce and your labor and, you know, your cost of goods. So, I mean, not to like dumb it down to that, but really you have to, you have to know that you can kind of float the company potentially, you know, for, I mean, I don't know what Dave Ramsey would say, but at least six months or so, I think, um, would be like ideal. Um, but I think, you know, for me, I always talk a lot about it before. I'm a big manifester. And so I start like, if that feels like it's really going to be good for me, I kind of start talking about it. Guys, I'm really thinking about opening a location in this area. What do you think? For me, it's walk-in traffic. People want me to open Southern Press Juicery in so many different locations and so many nooks and crannies. And even in big cities like Charleston, and um, I finally did open in Charlotte, but it's for me, for my particular brand, I have to have walk-by traffic. I will get my regulars that will come as a destination and park and get out of their car and come in and stay on their Wi-Fi for two or three hours. But the bulk of my service out to guests has to be people that were walking by, that were trying to go somewhere for lunch or trying to go for somewhere for breakfast, and they got lured in and picked Southern Press Juicery instead. So I would just make sure that you find a location that is not so, so high that you're like, crap, if nobody walks in the door for 30 days, I'm not going to be able to pay the bills. But it's a nice kind of, you know, small to medium rent. Um, and that there's parking, that there's accessibility, that there's a crowd there that you can really feed into. It's like, I mean, I don't know how many like emails I get a week from realtors saying like, hey, Olivia, there's this new shopping center coming and there's going to be like an axe throwing place and a, you know, and all these like a beer place. And I'm like, listen, dude, I'm not, I'm not, at all interested in being the anchor. I like, I don't, I'm not big enough for that. I don't want to be the place where other little shops are pulling off of my guest. I want to be next to another anchor where I'm feeding off of them. I don't want to be the biggest fish in the pond um, because I, I need more people than that. So I'm not interested in being next to, you know, places that are only open at night, like entertainment places or beer shops and things like that. Um, so I would just take a, you know, take a really good look at, um, the surroundings, foot traffic, and just try not to fall in love too easy. Um, you know, you have to consider, do you have to build a kitchen out? You know, what are the requirements for that? What is department of health going to require? Are there bathrooms? What's the square footage? And every state, it's a little bit different, even sometimes countywide. 
how many bathrooms you need per occupancy load. Um, so, you know, having probably a discussion with chef about what the back of the house looks like now and what you would need. Are you going to, if you know, if you're going to have an increase in guests, are you going to need to jump up from an M1 to an, you know, to a mini or from a mini to an X1? Um, kind of depends on where you are, right? But I, I mean, for sure, having a, a front of the house and the brick and mortar helps. Having an actual place is, it's a beautiful thing. You can take pride in it. You can spread out. You can do so many new things. You can test things with your guests, um, but you got to be able to afford it. Yeah. I mean, the location is definitely the most important aspect for sure. Uh, you know, what your surrounding businesses are, like Olivia mentioned, uh, some, some cities might not have a really walkable area storefront. So that's where drive-throughs are extremely critical or have some kind of option where people could order their juice and can be delivered out front to them. A lot of times it's an afterthought with that where, I mean, people from the gym, they're, they're sweaty, they're stinky. They don't want to walk inside. You know, they, they need, uh, that option to be able to order it and have someone bring it out to them. Uh, so that, that's definitely important, but figure out the numbers and have as much of a padding as you can, you know, cause restaurants, juice bars are the same. You need to have that six month padding just when you're getting your feet under you to become profitable. So what do you think, Eric? Any thoughts on this? Well, I guess, um, it depends on what your goals are as a business. If you know, I'm going to end up with a busy storefront and I'm trying to do this much in sales. And in order to do that, you have to have this storefront. If you're getting to, if you're growing and you're not comfortable in your current space, I think it's time to make that next step. Um, I think also sometimes people feel this pressure to open new locations um, and scale because they feel like that's what they're supposed to do. But then you might have, two medium busy locations that are kind of competing with each other um, instead of one location that's like crushing it and just there's always a line. So I think if your plan is to grow and you need that space to grow and you have an opportunity that you see it, I think you got to go for it if that's where you're trying to head your business. Yeah, that's a good point. Depends on the goals. Remember when Matt Sherman of... Uh, mm. what's his Google Fresh. Hugo Fresh. Fresh. He was very honest at JuiceCon and opened up about how he felt like, really, if he could have done it all over again, instead of expanding to a bunch of stores, he would have just stuck to his one super profitable uh, juice bar. They had an awesome reputation, great reviews, was busy all the time, they were making money. And then he expanded, opened up a bunch of new stores, and eventually went out of business. And he said he would have done it all over again. He would just focus on having one or two really good stores instead of trying to grow so much, but I think there is a lot of pressure to grow as a business owner just from people you know, and maybe if you have investors or customers always saying, oh, you should open one here. It'd be great for you. And Olivia, you said like realtors and stuff telling you there's these great new shopping centers open. There's a lot of pressure, yeah. you know, just external pressure to grow all the time. But it um, probably doesn't always make sense. Yeah, people think that's the... Uh ultimate sign of success is how many locations they have, you know? Yeah. Uh, There was one really good tip that our friend chef Kenny Lau gave at JuiceCon one year when we were discussing this and it was about picking a location. And he said what he'll help 
his customers do. He's also a consultant is he'll go and sit up front. Like if you are opening a juice bar and you're trying to choose a specific shopping center or something, he'll go sit at the shopping center outside of a similar type of business. Say it's a cafe and he'll literally sit there all day and count how many people walk in That's and out. That's what I do. And then, and then he'll go in the cafe and he'll try to calculate in his mind what the, he thinks the average amount someone spends in. And you take the people that visited there times the average amount they spend, and there you go. There's how much yep. money you're going to make in a typical Monday or whatever, or Saturday or whatever day you're there. And you can kind of extrapolate from there and see, okay, can I afford this three-year lease that they want me to commit to this? And commercial leases, you know, once you're in a commercial lease, there's, there's not really much getting out of it unless you bankrupt the company or... I don't know, come to some kind of agreement or they find a new tenant to move in early or something, but they're pretty hard to get out of. I mean, it sounds really scary. And, you know, I mean, I think part of the blessing and the curse of being an entrepreneur is that, you know, those things excite you and and you're a little bit scared, but you take the leap anyways. I just think it's like buying a car or buying a house or, you know, you just got to make sure you can afford it. Um, You know, like what happens if you lose your job? Like, can you can you pay for that big house for six months until you find something else? And so I'm not discouraging you from getting a, a, a storefront. I mean, the more storefronts, juice bars, the better for all of us. Um, I just think you, you don't fall in love with the first thing you see. All right. Well, thank you guys for another great episode. Thank you for our wonderful audience for calling in and contributing. Again, you can do that at goodnature.com slash radio and record a voice message for us. Thank you to Eric for joining today. I think he'll be on more frequently in the future. And I hope everybody has a great and awesome weekend and drinks plenty of juice. Bye, guys. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. It's another Friday. This week I did it my way. I made lots of juice and now I feel a boost. Baby, say, oh, it's the way I make my juice. Pressing fruits and roots. This week I did it my way. Baby, say, oh, now let's have some fun. There is nothing greater than Fridays at Good Nature.